0: Thank you for listening to this message from Rooted and Resolved. Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Zechariah chapter 1. In the book of Zechariah, we started last week looking at this sermon series together, Your Kingdom Come. Zachariah is going to focus on their particular predicament that they're going through. but then Zachariah also will share some things about the coming kingdom, about how to live in light of the coming kingdom of God. And so our sermon series has been your kingdom come." I will tell you that this morning I have or this week I have experienced a little bit of preacher block. you know sometimes I've had a little I feel like I've had trouble, thinking about or finding stories and ways to, to hook us into this message and get our minds turned. I was talking to Mark about that, and I talked to Mark about it, Amy, but I talked to several people about it, just about, about kind of looking for stories and things. But, you know, Mark shared something with me that's actually pretty good. Today we're going to be looking at a vision that Zechariah has. And, the, and the, the, the vision is going to involve a man among a grove of trees, all right? And so that's the title of the message is The Man Among the Trees. That's what we're looking at. And I believe that the vision itself is about reminding Israel. Remember last week how God was so angry with them because of their rebellion and disobedience. And he was saying, look, you, you've come back. You've been released from that captivity. You're here you started the temple, but 16 years have passed where you've done nothing. You hit the first roadblock and you quit. And remember God called Haggai to prophesy, called Zechariah then to, Haggai got him started on the work of the temple. Now Zechariah is telling them, finish the work and deal with the root issue of why you were apathetic in the first place and return to the Lord. And I think that this vision that we'll look at this morning is, is all about the fact that God is still with them, that God wants to restore, that God's presence is still with them. And that's a good reminder to us. When I was sharing with Mark about that, I don't know if you guys know about it, but Mark, a um, couple of years ago, Mark had an instance where he was in the hospital for a couple times. And, and one of those particular times, he had one of those with his um, Ehlers-Downers syndrome or whatever that is. He has that, those aneurysms that will, that will develop in him. And when he had that one a few years ago that they operated on, this is what happened. They came into that room that night, and they said, look, you're going to have to have this surgery tomorrow. This is the only hope that you have is to have this surgery. And just so you know, you've got a 10% chance of making it through the surgery. Now, imagine sitting there and getting that news. Here's Mark, single dad. He said, in that moment, he said, I wanted to talk to Brooklyn. He said, I just, want, I just wanted to talk to Brooklyn, and I wanted to, you know, she was not there at the hospital. There was, you know, it was through all those COVID times and all that stuff, too, and there wasn't a whole lot of people there. So I just wanted to talk to Brooklyn. And he said, look, I, I wanted I wanted my dad to be there. He said, I want, you know, I wanted to talk to my dad, and I wanted I wanted. He said, my dad was the first person that I called when they told me that because I, I wanted him to be there. And he said, David, you came by there and you prayed with me. And he said, that was really comforting to know that you were praying for me in the middle of that. Have you ever been in a spot like that where it was a rough time and you just wanted the presence of another person? That They didn't do anything. You understand that what they were saying was going on with Mark. When it came to Mark's health and and the percent it wasn't that if his dad showed up or if brooklyn showed up or if i showed up that the the percentage of uh, the chances of him making it through the surgery were going to increase that's not what was happening there in him But there was a comforting presence with him that made going into that surgery okay this is what israel needs to know this is what israel needs to see we're fixing to start reading the rest of chapter one pretty lengthy passage today but I want, I want to set this up by letting you know what we're going to read, okay? We looked last week at those first six verses. And three months after that first message that we looked at last week, God would give Zachariah a series of visions. Those visions all come within the course of one night. There's eight visions back to back that come over the course of one evening. And they will take up about six of the 14 chapters of Zechariah as he's explaining those visions to us. We know, according to the first verse of the passage we're gonna to read today, that this happened on February 15th of the year 519 uh, BC. And when we look to this text, you're gonna see that these visions are gonna come in the night. But I want you to understand that the language here is not conveying that this is a dream. The language is conveying that Zechariah is awake, and God is showing him these things, right? And so let's take a look at the text. Remember, we're going to be reading um, a prophetic vision, so what we're going to be reading may be weird, okay? Let's just set ourselves up for that. So Zechariah 1, starting in verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius... The word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, "'Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts. "'I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. "'I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. "'For while I was angry but a little, "'they furthered the disaster. "'Therefore, thus says the Lord, "'I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. "'My house shall be built in it,' declares the Lord of hosts. "'And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem.' "'Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. "'My city shall again overflow with prosperity, "'and the Lord will again comfort Zion "'and again choose Jerusalem.' "'And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. "'And I said to the angel who talked with me, "'What are these?' "'And he said to me, "'These are the horns that have scattered Judah, "'Israel, and Jerusalem. "'Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen, "'and I said, what are these coming to do?' And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. What in the world did we read? What is this about? It's happening. Let's take some time, and I want us to focus this morning on that man in the myrtle trees, because I think the man in the myrtle trees is the is the central figure of what's going on here. And see how these visions that 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 Zechariah has revolve around him. I want to start by pointing out this this man in the myrtle tree. I want to start by pointing out his concern for them, his concern for us. Now I'm going to focus right here for just a minute on verses seven through twelve and. When you get down to verse 12, you really see the concern that he has for the nation of Israel, but that's the last verse of this little section. So it's going to take us a while to get to the concern, right? Before that, in the, in, the passage, in, the, in the early part of the passages, you start to see this pattern that develops in, in what's happening with these visions. All of the visions that we'll read here will have the same pattern. There'll be some words of introduction. So like for, in our case, that would be verse 7. And then there's going to be a description of the vision, of what he sees. And then Ezekiel, I mean, uh, Zechariah is going to say, now what is this about? He's going to ask for an explanation, and then an explanation will be given. And so that happens before we get to verse 12. So let's look a little bit at what all of this vision means. Because all these prophetic visions are, are kind of symbolic, so what's the symbolism here? I believe that the myrtle trees are representative of Israel. There's several Old Testament passages that refer to Israel being that way. And, and, and the, the myrtle is an evergreen bush. You might even think about it being like a laurel bush. And those um, that, that that myrtle bush being evergreen, is that reference to an evergreen is often given to the nation of Israel. And so I believe that's what's happening here. If you look at the passage, notice how the trees are in a glen. They're in a low spot. This vision comes at night when it's dark and when it's uncertain. In Israel, it is a place where they're at a low spot and their future is dark and uncertain. Also, these myrtle trees kind of represent, remember, we're talking about the coming kingdom of God. We're talking about Jesus coming, saying your kingdom is at hand. And then we're talking about even a kingdom that's future for us a kingdom in the future where his rule and reign will exist here on the earth. Look at what it says when it talks about that idea of these myrtle trees in that glen and thinking about the kingdom, Isaiah 55 and verse 13 describes the kingdom this way. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This morning, when you look at this passage, I believe that the the, the myrtle trees represent Israel. There's another factor in all of this, and that's the angels. You notice how many times angels are mentioned in all of this? They're there a lot, aren't they? So there are two primary angels here. There's one angel that's listed as the angel of the Lord you see that one? That's the man in the myrtle trees. The man in the myrtle trees is often called, he, it talks about him in verse 8 as that, but then if you keep going down, there are several places where he's listed as, like verse 12, the one who's speaking is the angel of the Lord. Verse 11, we know he's the man in the myrtle trees, the angel of the Lord who is standing in the myrtle trees, the, the angel of the Lord. Now, I want you just to pause right there for a minute, but that's one angel. Just, we're going to come back to him but keep going, there's another angel because the, the second angel is the, is the one who talked with me. Like in verse 14, he's referred to that way. There, uh, verse nine, he's referred to that way. So there's an angel that's talking to Zachariah, the angel of the Lord's down in the myrtle trees in the vision, and then there are other angels that are listed. The other angels are the riders on these horses that are there who are patrolling the earth. It says in verse 10 that they go, these are those that the Lord has sent to patrol, to to look at the earth. Verse 11, they come back and they report that all the earth remains at rest. So in this vision, you've got the man, the angel of the Lord, standing there. You've got an angel talking to Zechariah, lots of other angels patrolling the earth on horses. The horses are kind of an element that people want to run to, but I don't think the horses are something we need to dive into. People try to attribute it to all kinds of things like the colors of the horses, like red's the color of war and white's a color for peace and sorrel or dappled or brown is kind of a mixture of the two. And so um, they're patrolling the earth looking for who's at war and who's at peace and who's has a mixture of the two. Who's not really at war and at peace, like, like right now, I would say that we're not at, at war with Russia, but there's like a tension there. You know what I mean? It's not really war. It's not really peace. There's something else. And so they go out and they look among the earth, and they're trying to find those sort of things. I don't know how relevant the colors are or the horses are, but I think there is something about the, uh, a horse being a swift animal and the swiftness with which they patrol the earth. But I want you to go back to that man, the man in the myrtle trees. I believe, there are people that would teach this differently, but I believe that the man in the myrtle trees is Jesus Christ. I believe that when you find the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is very distinct and different than unangel angel of the Lord. It's two different things. In fact, the way that the angel of the Lord is described in Scripture is very Jesus-like. Anytime the angel of the Lord is present... The angel of the Lord seems to be the center of things. It seems to be... It's like underscoring the importance of the angel of the Lord. Imagine in this instance, you have the angel of the Lord surrounded by trees, horses, angels. Everything is surrounding. They're reporting back to the angel of the Lord. There's, it's the central figure in this vision. Also, when you look at the angel of the Lord... The angel of the Lord is sometimes very distinct from God the Father. Very distinct. But there's other times where the angel of the Lord seems to be God himself. Well, who is distinct from God the Father and who is also divine and co-eternal with the Father? Remember we last Sunday night, the, the, you know Athanasius would be very proud of this sort of thing, right? Distinct from God the Father, yet co-eternal and divine like the Father. That's Jesus Christ. This is what we're finding in this description. You say, well, David, Jesus was born in, you know, Matthew. Jesus was born in in the New Testament, and Jesus was a a baby. So what what do you mean? Theologically, this is what's called a Christophany. It's the the idea that that Jesus is co-eternal. He wasn't born in Bethlehem. Jesus has, has existed with the Father. Jesus God clothed in human flesh. Think about him that way, right? When you think about when you think about the fact that God is spirit, and in the New Testament we learn that God is spirit, and He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. So God doesn't have a body like me and you, but Jesus is a man like me and you, and so in this way you can find Him in the Old Testament in places appearing in this physical form of God. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace. And remember, then they look into the furnace, and there's a fourth man in the fire. Remember that? And he looks like unto the Son of God, right? This idea. So when you find these places, and I think this is one of those, where this is Christ. And so with all of those things in mind, think about what's happening in this passage. Israel is at a low, dark spot. But who's right there in their presence? Who's right there in their midst? The Lord's with them. Lord's with them. These angels that are patrolling the earth, they go out and they look, and it says in verse 11, if they're going out and looking for the conditions of the earth, it says in verse 11, Behold, the earth remains at rest. Well, that's great, right? One would think. But then in verse 12, immediately following verse 11, this Christ... It says, the angel of the Lord, Christ, the man in the myrtle trees, says, oh, Lord, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem? In other words, look at... We would think that it's good for the world to be at rest. Later on, there's a different phrase that I like that makes it more apparent. It's that these nations are at ease. Here's the problem. Israel is in a low, dark spot. They are devastated. Their world has fallen apart and they're God's chosen people. You look at them having such a bad time, and you look at all the nations around them who are just going through life, they're at ease. No problem, seemingly. What is up with that? And Jesus, from the myrtle trees, intercedes on Israel's behalf. Ian Duguid says that when he's trying to describe and get in the mindset of of Israel in that moment, If, if if you're an Israelite, if you're a Hebrew who's living then, you've come out of captivity, you look around at all the nations around you at ease, he says that their attitude would have been, was the covenant with Abraham with its promise of blessing on those who blessed him and a curse on those who mistreated him, was that still in force? If so, why were the nations that had oppressed God's people at rest And at ease while they themselves were suffering. Have you ever been in a spot like that? Have you ever been in a spot, it's like a low, dark spot in your life, and you look around you, and the people that you see around you seem to be doing just fine. No problems. You know know how you would describe them? Their life seems to be at rest, at ease. And your life seems to be anything but. It's in that moment that it would be great if you knew that his presence was abiding with you. That's why the man in the myrtle tree speaks up at that point and says, Oh Lord, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem? Do you understand what's happening? He's pleading for them. This is Jesus' role. Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is the one who stands between sinful man and holy God. How is it possible that we are able to have a relationship? How are we able to commune with holy God? There is one mediator between God and man. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus is described as our advocate, making our case before the Father. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. He is for us. You see, the thing that we need to recognize, that we need to realize, is that, that he in this verse is displaying his concern for us. And this morning, you may be in a low, dark spot. The future may be uncertain. But listen, his abiding presence can be a comfort to you. That's what Israel needed to know in this moment. Look at the man, first of all, look at his concern. Secondly, look at his comfort that he offers. Go with me to to this second section, verses 13 through 17. The Lord wanted to remind his people that he was faithfully with them, that his presence was with them and he was comforting them. In fact, in verse 13, the very next verse tells us that the Lord answered to that question and, and, and he gives gracious and comforting words. He offers comfort. Here's an interesting verse I found in doing some word studies this week from the book of Lamentations. This is from Lamentations chapter one and it's describing Israel at the beginning of that period, at the beginning of that, uh, when they were back in the anger zone. Remember that? When they were back in the anger zone, look at how it described them. In Lamentations one in verse two, she, Israel, weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none To comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. All those gods they were worshiping, all those false gods, all those idols, none of them offered comfort. They were left without comfort when when, when they were in the anger zone. But what God says is, is that in this moment, I've put all that past. He gives comforting words. He gives gracious words to them. Notice what he tells them to comfort them. The first thing that you find in that passage is look at verse 14. When he gives this message, then the angel who talked with Zacharias said to him, the Lord of hosts says, I'm exceedingly jealous for you. One thing that I think can give us comfort is God is a jealous God. David, jealousy is not good. Remember how we talked about God's anger last week? We, we think that God's jealousy is not good because our jealousy is not good. It causes us to do bad things, causes us to feel bad things. Same way that God's anger is righteous, so also is his jealousy. In our jealousy, we have phrases for it, like the quotes and references that I found to jealousy is, um, think about uh, Shakespeare in, in Othello, talks about that jealousy is a green-eyed monster. It don't sound good. Mark Twain, that jealousy is the trademark of small minds. third one that was less familiar to me is a guy named Robert Heinlein. This was a science fiction writer. This is how he described jealousy. He said jealousy is a symptom of neurotic insecurity. Kind of true. When you think about us and how we get insecure, it causes us to be jealous. The things that we've, our jealousy is one thing, but God does not shy away from the fact that he is a jealous God. In fact, he pronounces it with, um, in this case, as a means of encouragement. He puts that out there about himself. In Exodus chapter 34 and verse 14, he says, For you shall worship no other God, listen, for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. James chapter 4 and verse 4 and 5, You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. We don't think of jealousy as a good thing, but God's jealousy for us is proof of his great love for us. That's what his jealousy does. Listen to this. One of my favorite descriptions about God's jealousy is from Joseph Addison, poet, wrote some essays. Listen to how he describes jealousy. Jealousy is the pain which a man feels from the apprehension that he is not equally beloved by the person whom he entirely loves. Do you see what he is? He is entirely loving us. And when that love is not reciprocated because he loves us, do you know what he feels? Jealousy. If Amy started hanging around some old joker, who's definitely not as cool as me, (laughs) started talking to him and started hanging out, started whatever else, I, I will feel jealous because I love her. If I didn't love her, it wouldn't bother me at all. But if jealousy is the feeling, the apprehension, that the one who you love entirely doesn't reciprocate that love, that's the issue. What he says here is, I am a jealous God. I love you. In fact, I've always loved you. Even in that time when you had disobeyed me and there was this you were in the anger zone. Even in that time, I was loving you. In fact, verse 15 is an interesting verse to me because it says where, where the Lord says, now I was, for a while, for, for a while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Do you know what I believe he's saying here? I believe he's saying, look, I, I needed to get your attention and I used Babylon and I used your captors to do it. But your captors sins.'" and that they went too far. Their cruelty went too far. When you returned to the land and and the Edomites criticized you and and even were violent to you when you tried to rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple, all of those people sinned against you in a way that demoralized you so that you were in this low spot. I'm jealous for you. I love you. And I don't want you to fall away from me or slip away from me. I want you to trust in me. I want you to love me. Continue in that little section. He talks so much about their restoration. He says, for you, he's giving them a promise that you will be restored. These are comforting words to them. Look at verse 16. I've returned to Jerusalem with mercy. And then look, my house shall be built. This will be finished. And the measuring line, the measuring tape, break out the measuring tape, start construction over Jerusalem. Because verse 17 my cities will again flow with prosperity. He's trying to comfort them. He's trying to show them, I choose you. I'm choosing you. In this moment, and I, and when, if you kind of list, parallel this to how we might feel, when we're in that low spot, isn't it good to know that not only is his presence like comforting to us, and not only is he concerned about us, but if you've been in those moments, I bet you have experienced comforting words from our Lord. Have you ever been in that moment where you're low, uncertain, you look around you and everybody's prospering, and you don't seem to? And he says, But I got plans for you. Plans for hope and for a future. I got plans for you. I I will not leave you, I won't forsake you. He gives you something out of his word that, that is this spark of hope within you to comfort you in this moment when it's like it's like the Mark situation. Your circumstances have not changed. You're still in the low spot. You're still in the dark spot. And everybody around you seems to be doing fine. But when he gives those words to you, when he comforts your heart, what happens in that moment is it changes everything. That glimmer of hope changes everything. He offers his concern and his comfort. But I want you to see finally in these last few verses, starting in verse 18, he revisits his covenant with them. His promise to them. Verses 18 through 21 are actually a new vision. Notice it follows the pattern. He lifts up his eyes, he sees four horns. He asks, What are these? Then there's an explanation for those things. And so when I mentioned earlier that Zechariah receives eight visions kind of back to back in the night, these in chapter one are considered those first two. Notice how this follows this vision of, of I'm with you, and, and I'm going I'm to restore you. But not only does God restore, God also deals with those who have wronged them, all those nations that are surrounding them. That's what this vision's about. It talks about in verse 19, he, he sees the horns, and he asks, what are the horns and he says, well, these are the ones that scattered you. These are the ones that, these are the ones that, that did the damage. These are the ones that hurt you. Now, we don't know what nations they are, right? Horns in Scripture are a picture or a symbol of power. Typically, when you see that, and it doesn't mean the power of a person. It typically means the power of a nation, of a country, a people. And so when you look at this, here there's four horns. So some people have tried to narrow it down and say, okay, well, what four people, what four nations is he talking about? people that, you know, get into the weeds and have charts behind them and when they preach and whatnot, they'll get into all what all that means, you know. Well, you know, Daniel had a vision in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, and Daniel's statue had four empires or nations. And so they'll say what he's talking about is he's talking about those four uh, empires, you know, the, the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, that Medio-Persian empire, uh, the Greeks and the Romans, that's what Daniel's vision was about. And so they would put it to those. Others would say, well, the, the Greek empire, the Roman empire is really not in effect in the same sense that, that we'll see it later. So what they're experiencing now is the, is the four nations that dealt with them personally, right? They would talk about the, um, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and the Medo-Persian Empire, and then the Edomites, when they returned back to Israel, and the Edomites were, were so ugly to them as they come back to their homeland, they say, well, that's the four. I don't know that it matters what the four are. Even I would give you this. Four is sometimes this picture of, like, you know, there's four points on a compass, and so the idea of it surrounding them, if the nations that are prospering that are at ease are just surrounding them, then the nations that are trying to tear them down are are just the ones that are around them. They're encompassed. So it could be that. that It's just a symbolic picture. But he he says, these are them. And then in verse 20, you get another element to this vision, and that's the craftsmen, the um, um, maybe we would say tradesmen, maybe smiths might be in your translation. The, The smiths who have come, what are they? Smiths or craftsmen are typically about building or constructing, but in this case, the angel tells Zechariah that it's about deconstruction. It's the same way that, that a blacksmith, instead of shaping metal, would melt metal down, right, in order for it to be formed. It's that kind of idea. He's going to he's, he's, He tells him that those craftsmen are going to be those who are going to do away with, are going to, to set right the enemies that are around them. Craftsmen seem to be just ordinary men, ordinary things, ordinary nations that are going to be doing this. We know that God can use lots of things to set right the things of this world. His word even tells us that it is the foolishness of preaching, right? That he uses the foolishness of preaching in order to save men. He uses the foolish to confound the wise, that kind of thought. In fact, that's what Jesus does. When Jesus comes and he's born, Jesus is born in lowliness in humility in in that way and and dies a very ordinary uh, death on the cross in that way. He dies just like anybody else would on the cross in order to rescue us from our predicament. See, in this moment, what he's saying is, is look, I'm not only just with you. You're in a dark spot. You're in a low spot. But I'm going to restore you. And I'm not just going to restore you. I'm going to set things right. That may happen here. But listen, if you look around you and the same people that seem to be at ease and seem to be at rest, and and if your life was miserable all of your days, and theirs seem to be at ease and right, ultimately, we know that it's all going to be made right in the end. Ultimately, we we trust in the judgment of God. In this moment, what's happening here? Bart Bodo, when he describes this vision, he says in this moment, the the heavenly curtain is pulled back and the prophet and the people are reminded that the Lord is in full control, listen, even when they do not sense it. This morning... I have a sneaking suspicion that some of us are in a place this morning where we just need the comforting presence of the Lord. A low spot, a dark spot. And wouldn't it be wonderful to know that the presence of the Lord is with you? You said, David, I don't know that I feel it. The message today is to tell you I'm there. I'm there with you. I'm among you. I'm with you. And I will restore you. And I will reset. I will set things right. It's this comforting word to us. He may not pull back the curtain the same way that he did for Zechariah, right? But wherever you are today, the man in among the trees is still the same. Jesus is still the same. Listen, if you're here today and you don't know him as your Lord and Savior, if you have no relationship with him and that spiritual, he's, he's revealed to you through the course of this message, your, your spiritual place that you're just not right with him, Do you know how you are made right with him? You go to Jesus. You cry out to Jesus. You ask for his forgiveness because Jesus is our advocate. He is the one that, like in verse 12, is advocating. He's interceding on our behalf, the Bible tells us, that he's there. He's pleading our case. He says, yeah, Father, you're right. They're an awful, wretched sinner who deserves hell. And I present into evidence my blood. My blood shed for them. Look, look, look at their look look, look at their trust in, in my blood. Do you see how I've done that? They they respond to this grace and, and by faith, they, they believe, and 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 there's this picture of how he has done for us. And he pleads the case with his blood. Right? He says, Look, my blood on their behalf. Today, if the blood, if, if you could not say, that the blood has covered your life. If you could not say that you've trusted in what Jesus did on, your, on the cross for you, you have, you've not put your trust in that, come to him today and respond to him. You may be here today and you may be just dealing with that in this low spot of your life and you just need to know that he's with you. He's there holding your hand. He's there beside you. He's with you. And maybe this morning what his Holy Spirit has done is said, see, see, I believe that our Lord is so great, he can take a vision that he gave to his man several thousand years ago and use it to span the ages to speak to you today about whatever your thing is that's going on with you. I believe he's able to do that. It's still applicable. It's not that I have to make the Bible relevant for you. The Bible is relevant. It is relevant to our lives because the man among the trees is still the same. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like to find more resources to help you grow in your walk with Christ, check out our website at rootedandresolved.org.